I still believe acquisition through Facebook being the main channel, you know, as good as TikTok has been to us and then all these new channels that keep coming up, there's this core competencies that something like Facebook as a platform provides, um, you know, it's where we build our community. And so I still believe Facebook is the number one place to acquire customers. And then I think it, if that's the only platform that we were left with, that's probably what we would die with. Hey, Ron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. Appreciate it. I wanted to dive in and start and ask you, how did you get into the startup space? How did you think about starting a, a company? Um, very interested in your backstory and then have some follow-up questions from there. So my backstory is actually, I was an accounting major, believe it or not. I went to school in New York City. I was a CPA and I worked at Deloitte, uh, one of the accounting firms right out of college. I got the opportunity to actually take a leap of faith and work as a controller for a startup supplement brand back in 2012. That for me was like, okay, if I go and do this, I can probably be, be an accountant any day, but uh, at least if I get a chance to work for a startup, I'll get to see if I like that space. So I took the leap of faith, uh, worked uh, for a startup as a controller, and uh, the startup I worked for back in the day uh, was a very intensive workplace. You had to work 18, 19 hours a day. It was one of the fastest growing supplement brands back in the day. It was skinny.com actually was the name of it. And um, what I got to do was because I worked so many hours, I used to ask a lot of questions around the numbers of things, you know, like, okay, I see why a P&L or a balance sheet is, is working a certain way, but why are we spending X amount on Facebook or why are we spending this on Instagram? What's really going on here? So those questions turned into me really understanding marketing in a different perspective. Um, and I just loved kind of the, the bridge between finance and marketing. And so uh, I kind of ventured out and, and just kept, kept digging, kept digging. Eventually, uh, myself and a couple other people that, that I worked with at that company, we left and we started our own marketing agency. I was kind of like the numbers guy behind it. My other partner, uh, Ashwin, who, who many of you guys know on Twitter, especially, um, he was kind of the paid media guy. And then another partner, he's kind of the designer. So us three started a marketing agency with the goal of helping other health and wellness brands because that was kind of our background. From there, we ran that for about five years. And then our goal was after that was, okay, we've learned enough. We've built other businesses. We've built other brands. What if we finally did it ourselves? And that's the culmination of what we uh, created Avi with and, and, and the knowledge that we used to, to build Avi. So you come from a finance background. So how do you go about thinking about marketing with the finance touch? It became more popular of a topic, especially since iOS and, and, and all the updates that happened where data has kind of become like this obscure thing that everyone's fishing for, but no one really has the answer around anymore, right? But even prior to that, I think the question that always came up is, oh, you can be a great marketer, right? And you can have great content, a great landing page and great product. But when you boil it down, for you to have a great business, you have to have a bridge between finance and marketing. And I think a lot of people miss that last piece where they're so heavily focused on the marketing part of it. That is the engine, right? But what, what you don't realize is without wheels on your engine, you, it's tough to keep going, right? An engine can get you as far as possible. But um, I think finance is truly the wheels that, that kind of need a, a powerful engine. And how strong your engine is, how fast you're going to go. So I think for us, the way we look at it and the way especially I look at it is, is 
without knowing your numbers on the finance end or the accounting end or the cash flow end, you can't truly fuel what marketing should be. And a lot of people, I think, work in silos like, oh, yeah, we have a finance department. You know, they, they do the P&L or the, or the accounting of it. And then a lot of people have marketing departments who just focus on content and top of funnel um, advertising. What really is missing in the between there is, is if you work together and find a bridge together, one can fuel the other while another can fuel, you know, it, it kind of works in, in, in both ways. So I truly believe that we don't really have a separation in our company in terms of that department. It's, it's really just a flush of both. So our marketing meetings includes finance. Our, our finance meetings includes marketing. And I believe that's kind of like an important piece to, 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 to rely on now. What are some data points that you look at when you're looking at marketing and finance? What are, what are some things marketers sh- should be talking to finance about? And what are some things finance should be talking to marketing about? You know, when you look at it from where is finance talking to marketing about, right? One of the things that we're often going about is, is okay, what is your cost per acquisition looking like today for new customers versus a blended total? And it's important to know both because one gives your business the ability to be sustainable and one gives your business the ability to scale. So right there, we're separating both. And what we'll do is, is saying, okay, new, new customer CPA is kind of high. Let's not scale the campaigning right now. Let's go more on the other side and look at blended and say, okay, where is this blended coming from, right? Is Amazon being really strong or are we seeing really good, good, good feedback on Google? Let's find other places we can scale. So it gives us a conversation point of how to sustain the business versus how to scale it. So that's one point from the finance end on market to, to marketing. And then, and of course, retention, CAC to LTV are probably all three of the top metrics. So retention, CAC to LTV, and then NCPA. Those are our top three metrics from a finance to marketing end. From a marketing end to finance end, it's often more so like, hey, I feel like this campaign or this channel has a lot of potential right now, or this new funnel I've built out, or this new landing page I've built out has a lot of potential. What is the amount of money I can test knowing that if we lose money on this, it's not going to hurt the business too much, right? So that's what we'll look at and say, all right, what was profitability looking like? What is the amount we can put towards testing knowing eyes closed if we lost every penny on this? It won't create a dent on the company. And that communication is so important. Because otherwise, you're always building your business with fear rather than transparency. That's the big difference in communicating between those two. How are you looking at what channels are performing? Because also, we know in the marketing world, like attribution is not always the best thing. So how do you look at the lens like, okay, we need to invest in more brand, but we can necessarily justify the cost of it, or we need to invest in this channel knowing that it might uplift other channels. For example, like someone sees a Facebook ad and then goes directly to our website and buys our product. So how do you look at that and attribute that? Part of the attribution is is the platforms that we use now, right? I mean, there's there's a bunch out there, right? With Hyros, Triple Whale, Northbeam, et cetera. So on on a top layer, we use Triple Whale in terms of understanding attribution to the best that we can. That's part of attribution is like, if you spin your wheels on trying to boil this down to a perfect science, those days are gone. 
trying to understand it down to the T or, or every order linking up to every platform and channel, those days are gone. And that's why, you know, there's so many even variables how we look at things, which is last click, first click, last touch points. The way we go about it, though, is similar to how we look at NCPA versus Blended. We look at um, the, the, the company on two channels. One is platform-based versus omni-channel-based. So what we'll do is, is on a daily basis or even on a weekly basis, we'll look at how is each platform kind of looking at in terms of attribution, right? Whatever we can square up and whatever we can say came from Facebook, Google, TikTok, Snapchat, et cetera. And we'll do our best job there and understand, okay, this platform looks like it may be a little bit weaker today versus this one versus that one. Then what we'll do on a more so bi-weekly and monthly cadence is we're looking at the full omni-channel experience. So we'll go into our spins data, which gives us vitamin shop and GNC data. We'll go into Amazon. We'll go into Shopify. We'll go into even our, our B2B and, and wholesale. And we'll look at where is the business sitting today on a very high level rough PL. And if we're in a good shape, what we're going to do is not heavily scrutinize the single channel platform attribution, right? What we're going to say is things are looking good. Let's at least keep the momentum going. Because I think sometimes what a lot of people do is, oh, wow, I couldn't attribute this. It can't be Facebook because those ads don't look like it's doing well. Let me turn it off. But really, if you take a macro approach as well, alongside your your more kind of micro approach, you'll understand, hey, maybe it's affecting other things. Maybe the ads you're running is actually have your best week in vitamin shop this week. So I think we've taken a, a very similar kind of two-prong approach on even on evaluating the business. One question, because you came from a digital marketing agency. So how has that changed your perspective coming from a finance to like doing digital marketing? How do, how has those two come together and collided to make better business decisions? One was when you, when you kind of get the opportunity to run an agency, no matter how big it was, we only in five years served 25 clients, okay? Because we we're very boutique. There was only three of us. But you get the perspective of how every business and different businesses have so many different challenges. I basically got a bird's eye view on 25 different businesses being built in 25 different ways. So when you look at Obvi being built, you are a little bit less on, on the scrutiny of how we perform, right? If we have a poor month versus a great month, you kind of understand that becoming numb to the up and down on a more, you know, smaller scale is, is important to become numb to it because, you know, you, you can't over glorify your best days and you can't overly scrutinize your worst days. Um, and we saw that, you know, even when, when we were doing on the agency and the other thing is, is with the agency end, you really realize the understanding of kind of like how to look at metrics on a much higher level because we're always talking to our clients who are going to be the, either the penny pinchers or the super conservative or, super micromanager people where it's like, hey, what's going on today? Things aren't looking good. We always had to explain the macro approach to everything as well. And so when we built it on, when we came to Obvi and we're building Obvi, I think we just became a little bit more understanding of the ups and downs of a business. And I think uh, that agency perspective helps because you're either on the one side of the business or you're on the other side. Being that we were on both sides, I think we get a better understanding of, of the full picture. I mean, you bootstrap, so you 
kind of got the lucky end of the stick in this like market right now. But do you think that what you were doing is what companies should have been doing five years ago? Because what I'm thinking about right now is everything was growth of all costs for about five, 10 years. And it, it doesn't matter like what you're, you can have like an average, a, a cack of whatever, as long as you're not right. burning that much money and you're not going to go out of business because you're going to go raise your next round. Do you think that more businesses are going to think of, okay, how could I build a more sustainable business instead of thinking about growth at all costs and what you're kind of doing right now? It's like, look, actually look at the numbers when you're doing your spend and your growth. I think first of all, there is such a larger public display of performance and information today, right? Even just in since iOS changes happened, right? That we are truly starting to value the businesses that are sustainable more than the businesses that have some top line number attached to it, right? I've seen more people ask the question of, oh, great, you hit $300 million. Well, were you profitable, right? Or did you, do, you know, what's the bottom line looking like? And and instead of overly glorifying you know, what happened five, 10 years ago, which is, oh my God, look at what the profit revenue they hit, right? And so I think that uh, not only should businesses build towards more sustainability in today's climate, because on the flip side, investor capital is starting to ask those questions, right? Um, investors in, 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 in a risk, you know, I always, you know, I consult with some clients and one thing I always tell them is, is we're in a post-pandemic, post-IOS pre-super inflation and pre-recession climate and people are building businesses right now. And so you almost have no choice but to be sustainable because on the flip side of raising capital, um, you know, talking to some VCs too, they're asking those questions. Well, you know, how, how are you sustainable? What's your path to profitability? What is, you know, this looking like? And so just in this era of where we stand today, I feel like you almost don't have a choice because someone's going to ask the question. Could be a consumer, could be someone on Twitter, could be someone in the VC space. Um, you're going to be asked, where does your business stand in terms of sustainability? Um, and it's agnostic to the revenue you make. I'm seeing that just being in the SaaS world, which got hit the hardest where, yeah. but it's it actually in the, on the marketing side is becoming a good thing because you're allowed to now invest in more long-term plays, which is great for the business where you, people are saying, okay, maybe you can spend less, like stop worrying so much about the gross numbers. This built a sustainable long business, which allows you as a marketer to think about brand and performance at the same time, because those are two things that are going to keep you in business for the longest, which two years ago, I remember, it was anything to hit a number. It didn't matter how how long term things were. Uh, so I think actually, even though you might get less budget as a marketing team, at least you can take on most businesses, not all businesses are going to be like that. But I think a lot of businesses can, now marketing teams could take a step back and be more conservative about I don't have to spend that much growth. If we grow like a normal rate a month, it's not a bad, a bad thing. I think profits getting the um, credit it truly should have always gotten right. And uh, I think even if you look at marketers 
in some standard now, every marketer now has a little data analyst in them. You know, attribution platforms were never a thing. Um, you know, they used to just be kind of things that, oh, yeah, some and some marketers use and whatnot. Now it's like once you start up your marketing efforts, you're on data. You're looking at the marketing platforms differently. You're looking at attribution platforms differently. And so and it's all partly because, oh, we need to be sustainable. We can still lose some money, but we need to be intentionally losing money. Not so much like, oh, OK, that's how much we lost. Shrug and move on. Right. Now it's 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 a very intentional. Um, even when you do lose money, a lot of good greater marketers have been always thought of marketing like an investment portfolio. So, well, how much you can invest? What are my best investments versus worst investments? How much could I put in these riskier stocks and lose, um, or riskier investments and lose? So, I think that has really helped a lot of marketers, but also at the same time the marketers who have just been spending to grow and haven't been looking at where the, the back end of stuff is, that's where the reality is. Yeah. yeah. This, I want to ask you going through seeing, being in an agency and running a company, what is a marketing hill you would die on? I still feel, you know, as much as we kind of hate on what's going on with Facebook and stuff like that. Right. I still believe acquisition through Facebook being the main channel, you know, as good as TikTok has been to us and then all these new channels that keep coming up, there's this core competencies that something like Facebook as a platform provides. Um, you know, it's where we build our community. And so I still believe Facebook is the number one place to acquire customers. And and I think it, if that's the only platform that we were left with, that's probably what we would die with. I think that is a hill you could die on because I think, a lot of people are scrambling, especially in the D2C space where a lot of businesses did get hit hard because they were doing the Facebook where they weren't looking at the finance side. And that's, right. at least, I mean, that's one thing that from a marketing perspective, B2B marketers could look at D2C marketers in terms of branding, creativity, how to get a sale very quickly. But I think from D to C marketers looking at B to B, B to B marketers really like look at numbers and they're deep in the numbers. And I think if those two blended together of the creativity and numbers, I think that's like a super marketer right there having like thinking about how to make a sale, how to be creative to do that, but also thinking about the numbers at the same time. I think it's a superpower, which I think you guys are doing at Avi, which is awesome. You're seeing the people who talk about it and look at it and approach it differently. You're seeing those people kind of not rise to the top or it's, there's, there's no hill on term, in terms of rising, but you'll see them approach their business so much more tactically than kind of the people who are still in the brand building uh, phase of, the, of their business and, and are kind of circling brand building. And not that you shouldn't build a brand because we've built a brand in, in my opinion, but I think there needs to be uh, today a huge balance between what brand building means. What's a, a trend you're seeing right now that marketers or businesses should jump on? There's probably two things uh, real quick. I, I think one is, is building a community and figuring out how to build that community and not really tying it to some ROAS or revenue, but building a community for what it's truly worth is, is, is helping people 
without expecting anything in return, right? That's truly what community is. That's what we've built our community around. And then secondly, I think is um, authenticating your business. You know, we believe that, especially in the world of, of D2C businesses that are, are, are tied to flavors or flavor systems or, or, or line extensions through, you know, uh, more options of, of their or verticals, what we're trying to do is authenticate these experiences, right? You look at the world of food and beverage, what separates one energy drink from another, right? It's ingredients for the most part, right? Or it's, it's the way of flavor tastes or, 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 or what's in the packaging. I think there's another step to a lot of this is authentication, right? You look at, um, you know, for us, for example, a lot of our, our flavors are collagen, are, are cereal flavors, okay? Now you look at cereal, you know, when you hear cereal, you're probably thinking Fruit Loops, Frosted Flakes, Honey Nut Cheerios, okay? They're top three cereals in, in, in America. Now, when you think about our collagen flavors, we have fruity cereal, we have cocoa cereal, we have frosted cereal, and we have honey, honey oat cereal, okay? That's what we call it. What if I could go and authenticate those flavor systems and get Cheerios licensed on my product, right? And actually have the true authentic Honey Nut Cheerios flavor. Or what if I can get Fruit Loops from Kellogg's and get the real Fruit Loops flavoring from my product, right? Now I'm bridging a gap between what people know as a day-to-day household brand and giving my brand an opportunity to kind of relate to that. We did that with Entenmann's. Our most requested flavor all time was a chocolate chip cookie flavor for our collagen. Uh, we went really creative here and we said, what if we can get Mrs. Fields or Tate's or Entenmann's or maybe even a Nabisco, you know, Chips Ahoy, authentic chocolate chip cookie license, and then we can use their flavor system. Um, we won the bid with two of them out of the four, uh, and then we went with Entenmann's uh, to license their authentic flavor. And now what we get to say is, guys, we didn't only bring out the most requested flavor, we brought out the most authentic version of it. And so I think more brands, if we can challenge that methodology of thinking of like, how are we going to level up against all of this level of, of competition? is completely separating the way we approach authentication. And I think what's what D2C, I love about D2C is products that are tied to experiences that people have in life where you're doing, let's say, cereal, but nostalgic cookie and stuff like that, where like you see about Red Bull, Red Bull has been done a great job of being in more like action sports and bars and like when you think go to a bar like the only energy drink you think about is red bull because they because they they've just created the experience that that's where things align where i think it just it's so experiential where you think okay if you're in a grocery store when i was a kid this is what i used to pick up as this and i want to go back to like i want to eat that but i don't want to totally just have a Entenmann's, I want to feel like I'm doing it in a healthier way. Let me just do it. So it's, which I love is just like you activating the emotion and the experience someone had before to a product that you have now. And I think a lot of people don't think about the full, what people are bringing the experience to a person instead of having the person get the experience. I think you have to feel think about experiences with D2C products or any product, because at the end of the day, that's where, how they feel when they, they come to your product or see your product or 
and you need to create that feeling where where you're going, which is how you win at the end of the day. And that's keeps memory unlock, like keeps you in the mountains. You put that in a really clever way, which is like bringing the experience to the customer. Uh, sometimes I think we're so reliant on, oh yeah, our product tastes good or yeah, our product works and uh, hoping that the experience is just created by them buying a product that may work or taste good. But really experience is, is deeper than that, right? Uh, there's a reason why one of the trips you like to take with a kid is go to Disney World, right? It's, it's, it's magical. There's something that is so heavily different and unique about it that no one can go mimic. We're not the only protein that made a fruity cereal version. But if we ever made a Fruit Loops version of our collagen protein, we will be the only ones that do it, right? So it's exactly that unique experience that you give to your customer and then almost pave the path to how they should feel and, and, and what they take away from it rather than leaving it like, hey, thanks for buying my product. Figure out how you're going to feel from it. Dan, I also think one thing that I thought about too is when you put that on your website, I mean, Joseph Sugarman says this, but like when you're writing great copy and I think creative is part of a copy experience, but you have to have a buyer in like a relaxed state of doing that. And I think when they see something that's like nostalgic, they get into a relaxed state of like, okay, I want to buy this product. I want to... That's one way to do it. I don't say it's every way, but I think the way a lot of people don't think about the product itself as an asset of writing great copy. They think of the props around it, but they don't think of how could I do this on the product to make the copy and the, make the buyer in a relaxed day. I love what you just said with that because the other flip side to this, which not fully relatable, but, but I think connectable is when we got the Entenmann's licensing, it put us as business owners in a very relaxed state as well, because now we took something that was nostalgic, iconic, and said, we can apply this to our brand, which almost in our way, in our mindset says, hey, if they're trusting us with something so iconic and nostalgic and important, we must be doing something in the right direction with our brand, right? It's similar to a consumer getting to that add to cart button almost and tying it back to, Hey, like you said, a relaxed state of, you know what? This is something that is, I know is, is branded and as iconic as nostalgic, something that I I've, I've been around for my whole life. I can trust that this buying decision is probably one that is valuable, you know, one that is makes sense. So I love the, I love both perspectives of it. Yeah. I love the flip side that you said too, because I think a lot of, a lot of marketers and business owners just need senses of validation and momentum. Otherwise, it's hard to keep going when you don't get validated that your idea is good or your product's good. And sometimes yeah. you just need that touch from a bigger brand or a big customer to tell you that you're hitting the right direction. So I love that, the, the flip side of it. Can agree more. What's one thing that if someone came to you today that you would tell them that they would come back to you five years from now and thank you for? Creating a negative cash conversion cycle for your business is just as important as figuring out what ad to scale tomorrow. Okay. 
I know it sounds really disconnected and like, why the heck does this tie together? But if you can't figure out which ad you can scale, that's going to affect your ability to turn over inventory, right? For especially for a CPG brand or, or, or you know, direct consumer brand, which will then affect your cash conversion cycle. On the flip side, if you pay for inventory too quickly or don't have good terms, you're going to put pressure on the ad that needs to figure out how to scale and force a cycle that is a little bit unnatural. I think both cash conversion cycles and the ads that you're trying to scale or the ad you're trying to scale have to be so in sync that both need to kind of give enough leverage for the other to work in its time. And I think looking at both side by side like we do is probably one of the most important parts of the business that I think is super underrated and not talked about enough. So I don't know if that's a takeaway, but um, I, I think that it's, it's my, my biggest comment is, is looking at cash conversion cycles alongside your campaigns is super important. No, I, I love that. I think, I mean, Ari, you know, Ari, but she always says like, you can't, you can't sell things that aren't in inventory and you can, you have to be able to predict like what's in inventory futuristically. And if you can't reliably scale ads to at least come close with like five, five to 10% of what inventory is going to be, you, you're screwed because you're going to over purchase and then can't sell. And then you have to, scale down something in the business or you're going to under purchase demand's going to be too high and you're going to annoy customers. And I mean, I'd rather have over uh, under under and figure out that part, but um, always. Yeah. That's been our model. That's why we stock out so much. One last question I have for you is who are some people that you've looked up into the marketing space or the DD space that have inspired your journey as an entrepreneur and marketer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is uh, Dan Lorenko. He's actually not really, you know, maybe maybe I, I connect Twitter or LinkedIn too much to D2C and, and CPG, but he's, he's in, the, in, in the CPG and, and in direct consumer space, but he's the owner of Ghost Lifestyle, which um, is, I think, in our era, one of the most iconic sports nutrition supplement brands, um, you know, nine figure brand now. And what they've done for, for those who don't know, um, they've authenticated every single one of their SKUs almost. Um, so they own the exclusive license to Nabisco. So their Oreo cookie flavored whey protein actually has real Oreos. They have real chips Ahoy. Their peanut butter cookie uh, whey protein has nutter butter in it. Uh, their pre-workouts are Swedish Fish, Sour Patch, and Warheads. They have the, the exclusive licensing to some of the largest brands in the world. And, you know, over six years, they built Ghost to, to a nine-figure brand. And he coached me through the Entenmann's licensing too. But I think he's been such an interesting uh, piece to how I look at businesses. He's truly delivering authenticity and experiences to his customer base who have a sticky rate of almost 55% retention. So when I look at, oh, you know, supplements are so competitive and, and people always have that connotation to it, it doesn't have to be if you're just unique in your approach. So he's been a huge piece of how we look at, you know, growth. And then I think uh, another big uh, piece to someone who's mentored me is um, uh, Barry Turner. He owned uh, Lenny and Larry's Cookies, which are these first of its kind protein cookies 
that is everywhere now, right? Uh, he was the founder of it, and uh, he sold the company again for nine figures. And uh, he's coaches me a lot with kind of staying your path. You know, he took 10 years to build it. Um, a lot of us are now in this rush, it almost seems like. Like, oh my God, year over year, you didn't grow. Oh my God, you haven't hit uh, 10 figures yet. You haven't, sorry, not 10. You haven't heard uh, six figures, seven figures, eight figures. How, you know, how are you going to hit 20 million next year? Versus stop looking at everything as growth and versus look at what is do you want to get to? And what are you doing each year? to crack at that, right? And it doesn't only have to be top line revenue. You could grow in different ways. So uh, two pretty good uh, examples, uh, I think, that have been uh, pretty iconic. I love it. I remember Lenny um, and Larry's because I worked at Snack Nation and they were just... Oh, yeah, yeah. They were just coming in the boxes there and it was just... Yes. They were just trying to test new flavors, which is... They are iconic and I love... The CBG space is just so interesting, but I love that your example with Ghost, where they, it shows like the importance of brand and community and referrals, not only outside of creating a good product. Because some people have like great products that have tasted, but I don't think about them after, or I don't remember what they are, or. I've never thought of them again, even though they were one of the greatest products, or I had them and again remember the name because the experience yes. isn't good enough um, right so right it's not sticky enough i agree um well last thing i have for you is give you a minute or two to talk about where people could find you where people could find avi and stuff like that so i've been pretty i just joined twitter a few months ago but i've been trying to be a little active there so avi ceo on twitter otherwise i'm almost always on linkedin uh that's my favorite place to be so just look up my name, uh, Ronak Shah, on LinkedIn. Uh, in terms of Obvi, um, you know, Instagram's the best place. Uh, that's where we post a lot. But I think in terms of if you really want to understand what Obvi is doing, come to our community. Uh, if you go to Facebook and you type in Obvi community, uh, it's like I said, the largest college and community in the world, 55,000 active women and men who are just talking about health and wellness all day, every day. And uh, check it out on myobvi.com or Vitamin Shop Nationwide. I love it. Thanks for joining and sharing your knowledge. It's been awesome. Thanks for the opportunity. And and again, uh, I really appreciate you giving me the platform. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.